My great treat in life is to talk about Jesus. It is such an honor to shine the light on Christ. We have this awesome responsibility in ministry to pull grave clothes off of resurrected people. What I mean by that is you have come to life in Christ, but you're carrying around guilt, shame, fear, condemnation, confusion, ignorance, hurts, problems, and you're carrying them in a resurrected person because you are the righteousness of God in Christ because of what Jesus has done, but you carry all of the baggage of being human. I'm not here to beat you up for the baggage you carry for being human. I'm here to try to help you lay the bags down. That's what ought to happen when we walk into the house of God is be shown how to lay some of the luggage down. Take some of the grave clothes off so that the true you can be exposed to the light of God. And I want to say something maybe a bit shocking out of the gate, especially when you come to terms with understanding grace and the grace of God. But it's this. When you lay bare before the Lord who you are, some of what you'll lay bare before the Lord are really bad and wicked and evil things, and you're carrying them as the children of God. And I'm not here to beat you up for carrying them. I'm here to ask you to bring all of that stuff and lay it down in the light of His truth and His love and, and begin to accept the healing that comes with knowing Him. So that's how we start today, and I want to I really lay out a premise and that is that two, true, two things can be true at the same time. This is something everybody knows. This is why we say things like we have a love-hate relationship. What's love-hate mean? Well, it's probably a little extreme. You rarely hate something that you love, but we know what we mean. Two things are true at the same time. I both love this and there's elements of this that I hate. You don't entirely love it. You don't entirely hate it. You love-hate it. No one ever says that. How do you feel about me? Well, I kind of love hate you. <laughs> it would be the wrong foot to start a relationship with. Even though there might be some truth in that, I love a lot of things about you and I hate a couple things about you. Let's just focus on the things I love about you. Maybe the things I hate about you will go away. Two truths can happen at the same time. I want to minister two truths today. So we talk about truth in light of the grace of God. We think about Jesus the man. Grace and truth came by Jesus. And so what we're really fond of saying in grace circles is grace is more than a principle. It's more than a doctrine. It's a person, and the person is Jesus. And I, I stand by that. We're not wrong. Grace is Jesus. Truth is Jesus. But there are things about the truth in Jesus that are true at the same time that on the surface might look like, and here's a word we all are scared of, especially in regards to the Bible, they might look like contradictions. One of the great efforts of Christian apologetics is to try to overcome contradictions. When people say to you, well, I can't follow the Lord because the Bible is full of contradictions. You've heard that argument. The Bible says this here and then it says this here. And I'm not standing up here today and give you an hour on apologetics on how to handle contradictions because I actually think that a lot of times what we deem to be contradictions are in fact paradoxes. Because a paradox and a contradiction look a lot the same when you glance at them, but they're not the same thing at all. In fact, a contradiction are two things working against each other. But a paradox are things that don't appear as if they can exist at the same time, and yet they do. And it takes the responsible viewer or the responsible reader to wrestle out why it's a paradox. Now, we can be lazy and just refuse to deal with paradoxes. But you didn't come on a Sunday morning to be lazy. You come to hear about Jesus and realize that sometimes encountering God requires you to wrestle a little bit with the angel. 
That's what our Bible teaches us. And so therefore, wrestling a little bit on a Sunday morning isn't beyond any of us to address paradox. So I want to look at two truths today. Two truths that I think are absolutely true about following Jesus. And if you just preached one truth today, you could say amen to all of it. If you just preached the other truth today, you could say amen to all of it. But if you tried to dare preach them in the same sermon, it'll look as if a train is about to collide. Two things that don't seem as if they can exist. But I want to show you, I don't think we're dealing with a contradiction. I think we're dealing with a paradox. To do this, I don't want to wear you out with Scripture. But I want to show a paradox in two ways. I want to show you a paradox inside the same story. And I want to take that story and show it as a paradox against another one. They're both Jesus statements. So to play fair, we use the same speaker, Jesus. We let Jesus present a story that has an internal paradox. We take Jesus' story and we put it against another Jesus story where we find another paradox. And it isn't so that we walk out confused on what to believe. It is so that we walk out wrestling with what to believe and realize that in that wrestling, great beauty can come. So I will meet you in Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus gives us one of the most famous grace passages in all of the Bible. This is where we get from the message. We get that famous statement of living loosely and easily in the unforced rhythms of grace passage. I want to read it to you in the New King James from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me. This is Jesus talking. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Next verse. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I want to present for you an internal paradox. In verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are laboring and heavy laden, I will give you rest. How many of you know that give means it's a gift? If he gives it to you, you don't pay for it, right? I will give you rest. And this paradox is take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So I ask you, which one is it? Does Jesus give you rest or does Jesus ask you to find rest? Is this a contradiction of terms? In one verse, I'm given rest. It's a gift. In the next verse, I'm supposed to watch him, learn from him, pay it, as Eugene Peterson says, pay attention to how I do it and you'll learn rest. You'll find rest. And so this is a simple paradox. Most of us read this and don't even think of it as a paradox. We just look at give and find as maybe synonymous terms. But I'll present to you that Jesus lays out two kinds of rest in this text. I don't want to stay here long. But there's a rest that's given to you when you come to Jesus. You get to rest from working for, for your righteousness. You get to rest from working for your heaven trip. You know, I want to go to heaven. God, what should I do? And so you get to rest from your effort. You get to rest from your labor when you come to Jesus. He gives you a rest that you can't pay for. He gives you a rest that you can't earn. But then he turns right around and says, if you'll watch how I do it, and you'll learn from me. You'll find rest for your soul. And when Jesus uses the word soul, he's talking about your emotions. Everything that happens up here between these ears. Everything that filters down into the way you, here's a word we love, into the way you feel. And what happens is when I get rest given to me by Jesus, I don't always feel at rest. But as I watch Jesus, I begin to step into a rest I can feel. This is a paradox. I receive his rest but I learn his rest. This is why we both need a salvation experience in which we meet Christ, and we need a discipleship experience in which we continue to follow Christ, because as we continue to follow Christ, we find the rest that Christ gives. Simple paradox. Is rest given or is rest learned? Both. You receive his rest because it's a gift of God, 
and you learn his rest as you live for God. Have you found that to be true? Simple paradox. They're not all so simple. Let me give you a little tougher one because that's what it's all about. It's trying to take two truths that might not lay up next to one another quite so well. And to do that, I want to take you to Luke 9. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this in verse 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, before I lay out what I think is a paradox that can look like a contradiction. I want to talk about the cross for a second. Really good chance that in this room right now there's a cross around someone's neck, piece of jewelry, maybe a cross hanging from someone's ear, possibly a cross tattooed on someone's arm or chest or back or leg or whatever. Probably got a cross maybe on the front of your Bible, something etched or stitched. You got a cross on a bookmark. Point being, it's become a symbol, almost a piece of jewelry a marker, an ID of sorts. By looking at the cross, we identify ourselves with Jesus. You don't see cross and think Buddha. You don't see cross and think Muhammad. You see cross and you think Christ. This is why I like to say to people, when people act like God didn't win, sorry, you only think of one person when you look at the cross. Jesus won. Let that soak in for a moment. Christ won. When we look at the cross, we don't think of anybody else but the man, Christ Jesus, dying on our behalf. And if we take it a step farther into resurrection, you're probably a believer. Because the moment you believe he came out of the grave, you qualify as following the one who now lives. And so I think once again, Christ wins. I like that. So that's the cross to us, but that's 20 centuries of thinking about the cross, putting it in artwork, putting it in books, putting it on paper putting it on our bodies. That's the cross from our point of view, looking back. But that's not the cross in Luke 9.23. Because in Luke 9.23, the cross exists as an execution method of the Roman Empire. Good people don't die on crosses. Bad people die on crosses. Strangers die on crosses. Criminals die on crosses. And you die naked and embarrassed in front of your peers. You die slowly and painfully. They don't pull your body down when you are dead. They leave you there so that the carrion can eat you off the cross and the animals congregate at the bottom of the cross beam to pick off your body for weeks and months as it disintegrates in the weather. The cross isn't romantic. The cross isn't inspiring. The cross is embarrassing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul called it the scandalon of the cross from which we derive the English word Scandal, because Paul said there's a scandal afoot in our faith that our leader, our founder, died numbered with transgressors because Roman, good Roman citizens don't die on pieces of wood outside of the city. They die warm in their bed in the city. But a stranger and a vagabond dies on a cross when Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to follow me, boys, be prepared to die on crosses. It's hard for me to get across to you today how stunning it was, so I'll change his language and try. Let's act like he's here today saying it to you. And it would have sounded something like this with all the embarrassment and the jarringness that this is going to hit you with. If any man wants to follow me in this house, let him take up his electric chair and follow me. Now the reason I say that that's scandalous is because if you said to me, my friend died this week, I would say to you, I'm sorry to hear that. How did your friend die? And if you said he died in an electric chair, 
I know that your friend had a very particular set of circumstances that led to his death. Your friend was rather guilty, would you say? And I don't just mean he, was, he didn't jaywalk. He didn't steal a couple candy bars down here at Casey's. Your friend took some lives. Your friend ended someone's destiny to the point that a jury of his peers thought he should die that he didn't even need to be around on the face of the earth. You got a pretty big story if your friend died in an electric chair. I've got several questions for you, but whether you answer any of them or not, or whether you ever tell me your friend's story, I can infer two or three or four or ten things about him, and none of them are good. And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, get ready, because the things that might be inferred about you may not be good, because following me is not the road to riches and wealth and favor and ease and prosperity. Following me might end you up on a cross where you die in shame, where you die outside the system, where you die lonely, where you die a stranger. How many of you are ready to sign up and come follow Jesus? That's the question Jesus asks his disciples. And the reason I say to you this is a paradox is because this doesn't sound at all like the Jesus of Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. Flip the page, toss the coin in the air and on the other side he goes, if you want to follow me, get ready. You're going to pick up your cross and carry it up the hill. And when you get to the top, you might die. Do we have two contradictory Christianities? Unfortunately, we kind of do. Because in many places... We're hearing the gospel that only says, you are sons, you are favored. This is easy. This is simple. And in many other places, we're only hearing the gospel that says, this is hard. This is tough. It's not easy to be saved. It's difficult to follow God. And I say to you, they are not contradictory messages. They are two sides of the same coin. They are a paradox that can only be solved in Christ. On one hand, he says to you, it is easy to be my kid. And on the other hand, he says to you, discipleship is hard, man. And I think it's because Jesus presents us the path to sonship and the path to discipleship. And they're the same people on the path with two different iterations of who we are. You see, in Christ, I am His Son. Thank you for the two amens. All right, let's try it again, but I'll change the pronoun. Maybe you'll feel better about it. In Christ, you are His Son and His Daughter. You like you better than I. I get it. Okay, you are his son. You are his daughter. And that resounding amen means you believe I am one of the family members of God and I would absolutely agree with you. You belong in daddy's house. You belong at the table of the king. Whenever you came home from slopping the hogs of the world, he met you at the end of the lane with shoes and a robe and a ring and he slew the fatted calf in front of you and he said, belly up to the bar, son. All of the things are gone. Welcome home. You are my son. And you are here today because you have entered into the joy of being a son or a daughter of the king. And if you don't know it, it's time you know it. And if you don't know it, it's time you know it and go live like it and go act like it. But, but... But Jesus says, if you follow me, you're going to pick up a load and stick it on your shoulder and walk up a hill because following me isn't just sonship. Following me is discipleship. 
And disciples copy their master. And so while it is great to be a son, I'm having a blast being the father's son. What has happened to me in the last several years is an awareness as the revelation of God's Spirit shines the light on my sonship. He says to me, you being a son in front of the world is one thing, but you being a disciple in front of the world is another. Because when you are a disciple, you don't go out to show the world your sonship. You go out to show the world your Savior. And it is one thing for me to go out here and show the world that I'm one of dad's kids and boast about it. And I think that's a pretty good testimony, but it's not the end of the day. Because at the end of the day, it isn't about you seeing how much favor I have. It isn't about you seeing how secure Paul White is in his Jesus. Boy, that guy really loves the Lord. Man, he knows the Bible. I've never seen anybody that understands grace like he does. Because at the end of the day, that doesn't mean squat to the guy that doesn't know who he is in Christ. What matters is that he sees a Jesus that loves like Jesus and lives like Jesus and acts like Jesus and talks like Jesus. And you go, well, that's too big of a task to ask. Yes, it is. That's why the cross is heavy. That's the part of it that is big when you put it on your shoulder and you walk up that hill with him. You are not a disciple so that you can go to heaven. You are a disciple because you are going to heaven. Amen. You are not a disciple so that you can please God. You are a disciple because you're a son and a daughter already pleasing to God. Having established your identity, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll do the work. Put my yoke on, watch me go to work as you watch me go to work. You live freely and loosely and lightly in this world and you come in and out and find passion, all those beautiful things about grace. But as you do that, you start to realize that there's a cross to pick up. There's a heavy load that you have to bear. Paul, let me, let, me, let me try to take you to that cross real quick. And I want to use the Apostle Paul to do it. I want to put us in the middle of Paul's theology, if we can, for a moment. Without wearing you out on text, listen to what Paul said about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. Paul said, this is what I heard God say. I delivered to you what I received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, Paul doesn't tell you what Scriptures, so I'll, I'll help him out. Isaiah 53 says he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Jesus goes to the cross for us. Amen. And so Paul says he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now I want to ask you a question today. How many times did Jesus die on the cross? Once. Now don't answer this next one for sake of your own embarrassment. How many times have you sinned? The number is significantly higher than once, or I promise you, you just did for the, at least the second time. So, having, having exceeded your limit of sins based upon how many times he died, you're in trouble. Christ having died once, you having beaten the, the sin number beyond once a million or two million times over, you're going to need, obviously, you're going to need Jesus to die again, right? Because that's how this thing must work. Having died for me and then I accepted Jesus, I'm going to need Jesus to keep dying because God knows we sin better in 2022 than they did in the year two. Amen. I mean, we're better at sinning. Sinning more than they... Sin, doing stuff they could have never thought of, bless God. Paul addressed that in Romans 6. Same writer. If we're going to use Jesus as our paradox, let's let Paul compliment Paul. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. For the death that Christ died, he died to sin how many times? 
once for all. Done deal. He's done. He's not going to die twice. He didn't die three times. He's not going to die again in the year 2050. He's not coming back to die again. Christ has died once for all, but the life that he lives, not the life that he lived, the life that he lives, he lives to God. Paul believed in a resurrected Christ who was still alive. He had died but once. Once was enough. No matter how many times you outsend the cross, he said Christ died but once for your sins. Now here's my question to you. Why doesn't he die two times for your sins? Why doesn't he die three times for your sins? Why don't you have to go back to him every single time and get resaved every time you sin because you know you sin? Because Paul says this in verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon, count, consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord oh I know I sinned but because I'm in Christ all of my judgment against my sins are in the one-time death of Jesus so I don't go back to God looking for God to reapply blood to forgive what I did yesterday. Christ died 2,000 years ago, died to sin one time. I consider myself dead indeed to sin. I consider myself dead even if evidence is presented to the contrary. Please hear that again. Otherwise, what's the use of the word reckon? Because the Greek word here is an accounting word. It's what an accountant does to the books. Imputes it. Done deal. At another point in his writing, Paul said, God imputed righteousness to you. In other words, God went righteous. Stamped it. Oh, you sinned after he stamped? Too late. Already stamped it. Man, that ought to excite. That excites me. Oh, you sinned after I dropped the stamp? Oh, too late. Sorry, I already dropped the stamp. Imputed righteousness he imputed it to me counted it to me accounting term if that's the case and it is in the greek likewise you also count yourself dead count yourself dead to sin even if you have sinned why because my yoke is easy my burden is light that's simple man yoke is easy burdens light boom got it died for me i count myself dead to sin. here's the problem because yes there's a problem because there's multiple paradoxes when we start to deal with this. This is why we keep wrestling out truths about who Jesus is. We keep mining out the depths of the resurrected Christ. And one of the things we mine out is we realize that i got to consider myself dead because Jesus died to my sins one time. The problem is I have to consider myself dead because I'm presenting evidence to the contrary. The issue is i got stuff in my life, man. Now, I don't know if I would have amended that either because who in the world wants to admit you got stuff in your life? But you got stuff in your life, man. You got problems. Some of them's up here. Some of them's down here. Some of them's in your wallet. Some of them's in your marriage. Some of them's at your job. Some of them's with your enemies. You got problems. You got issues. You got stuff. Let's say it better. You got burdens. I'll take it a step further. You got sufferings and problems. Things that you are required to pick up and carry every day. Which is why I say two things can be true at the same time. Thing number one, Jesus' yoke is easy, his burden is light, it's easy to be a Christian. If being a Christian is to identify as righteous, forgiven, and one of the sons of God. No works by you, congratulations, Jesus paid it all. Amen. Flip the coin. True at the same time, there's a cross to pick up. There's a load to bear. There's issues you carry with you every day. There's stuff you go through. Sicknesses, disease, problems, faults, failures, assaults, abuses, molestations, abandonment, 
pain, wrongs. Some stuff you did to yourself, some stuff your parents did to you, some stuff your brother did to you, some stuff your neighbor did to you, some stuff your teacher did to you, some stuff no one did to you. You're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I thought his yoke was easy and his burden was light. I didn't think stuff like this was supposed to happen to me. I'm one of the children of God. And Jesus said, there's a cross and you pick it up and you follow me because it's what we do. Because we don't shirk our duty. We don't shun our responsibility. The fact that we have it in front of us gives us a reason to slap our feet on the floor in the morning and pull ourselves out of bed. Sometimes it is not so that we can go on vacations or that so that we can go to leisure or so that we can rest. Sometimes it is because we have to go bury a loved one and hold the hand of a dying friend and appear in court pay our fine, be with our friend and cry when they cry and laugh when they laugh and suffer when they suffer. And God doesn't take all of that away because I'm a Christian. And God doesn't put it on me to teach me a lesson. But wherever I walk into it, my Jesus walks into it with me so that I know His yoke is easy and His burden is light. It's only easy and light if I'm holding His hand, if I'm next to Him, if I am with Him in the midst of that suffering. Otherwise, it's too much for me to bear. But there is a cross for me to bear. There are things that I carry through this life. There are stuff. Here's one of the remarkable things about that story in Luke 9 where Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, follow me daily. Jesus said, there's some of you standing here who will not taste death till you see the kingdom of God. And that's a very eschatological statement that Jesus said in, the, in, in regards to the arrival, the fullness of the kingdom for his disciples. But in the middle of that tasting death, he laid out a term that the author of the book of Hebrews uses. And I want to I want to take you here quickly on our way to our landing, and that's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. Now, I, I don't want you to, if you got a hard copy, don't do too much peeking. Don't run back to 5. Don't run up to 10 or 11. Just, just stay with me for a moment, and I want you to try to determine who the author of Hebrews is talking about. There's a testimony in a certain place in the Scriptures that says, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. I don't want you to go to the next verse yet. I want you to stay right there. And I want you to try to determine who is this about? And this very, very much, almost every time we read this, I, this idea that all things are under His feet, everything's put under subjection, we don't, just, we don't see it all yet, but hey, everything's under Jesus' feet, right? Jesus has done it all. But this text isn't about Jesus. How do we know? Look at the last sentence. Now we do not yet see all things put under Him. What do we not see? We do not see all of our problems underneath the feet. Under the feet, by the way, is is an allegory for a conqueror. The victor put his foot on the chest of the victim. Under his feet means I beat it. He goes, not everything's under his feet. Look at the next verse. But we see Jesus. What do we see? Jesus. What do we not see? Everything under someone's foot. Can we go back one screen to verse 8? 
I like that the New King James Version tends to capitalize pronouns when they're about Jesus and leave them lowercase when they're about us. They don't always do a great job, but they nail it in Hebrews too. Because if you'll notice, all of the pronouns except for the middle of the verse, they're lowercase, and the middle of the verse is uppercase. Look at the, look at the middle of the verse. In that He, God, put all in subjection under Him, lower H. Who's lower H? Us. God put everything under us. He didn't leave anything not under you. But we don't see it that way. Right? So what should we look at since we can't see everything under our feet? Next verse. We see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels, who suffered death, crowned with glory, crowned with honor, so that Jesus, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. In other words, here's another paradox for you. God has put everything under your feet. Does it look like everything's under your feet? Come on. So is God crazy? Lying? Waiting on you to jump through hoops to get there? No. No, 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 no. In God's economy, He did it all one time at the cross. Amen. Victory is in Christ and His resurrection, but you do not see it all because you are on a journey, man. You are walking this thing out, and part of your journey is picking up the heaviest load you can pick up once in a while and carrying it up the tallest hill you can carry it up. Because that's exactly what our Jesus did. Or as Paul said this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I'll close you out. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. This is always one of our favorite verses. People love to quote this. Boy, I want to know Jesus and the power of His resurrection. And almost no one quotes the next line. Because what idiot wants the fellowship of His sufferings? Right? Who would pray for that? How many of you got in prayer this morning and said, Lord, I'd like to know You better. Can I suffer with You? No, we don't pray that way. Paul says that I may know Him and the power of what it means to be alive. That's what resurrection is. I want to know what it means to be alive. And part of being alive is suffering. And understanding that in that suffering, I'm learning what it means to be on Christ's cross. To have less of me and more of Him. I think one of the most underpreached and beautiful stories in the Gospels is the moment when Jesus, walking up that Via Della Rosa, carrying the cross beam up the hill, stumbles for the final time, and a Roman soldier grabs Simon the Cyrenian and pulls him out into the path and tells him, You pick up his cross and carry it up the hill. I think we ought to preach that more often in the church because it's a prescient moment of what happens when you meet the crucifying Christ. Because as you meet Him, the cross lays there and you pick it up with Him. And you put it on your shoulder with Him. And you go up the biggest hill in front of you with Him. But I said with Him because He doesn't beat you to the spot. He walks you to the spot. What you find as you pick up the load and live for Christ is that it's actually His cross you're carrying. He's not asking you to do anything He hasn't done. He's just asking you to hold His hand on the way. Amen. Every fiery furnace you enter, there's a fourth man in the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Didn't we throw in three? Why are there four? And the fourth looks like the Son of God. Because for every fiery furnace you walk into, and yes, you will walk into them, you walk into it to meet the Son of God standing in the midst of the flames. 
And what's the only thing that burns off of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they come out of the fiery furnace? The things that tied them up. The grave clothes they walked in in. They walk in in something they don't need and they walk out without whatever they don't need. And that's you in the moment of your greatest crises. In the moment of your greatest pain. You walk in and meet Jesus and He goes, I know this hurts, man. I hate it too. I'm here with you. What happens to you happens to me. God's not distant when bad things happen to you. God's in the middle of it. It's happening to Him too. I don't mean He's standing there going, you can do it, you can do it. Come on, you're tough. I mean it's happening to Him too. You cry, He cries. You're in pain, He's in pain. He tasted death for all of us. He suffered the cross because He knew you were going to die. Why does Jesus die on the cross? Here's our easy answer. Because we're in sin. Let me give you a better one. Because God didn't know what it was like to die. So He became a man. And if I can take license for a second, He became a man and He said, these people are so scared of this. I'm going to go find out why. And he hung on the cross and he looked out at the world and he said, Father, you're going to have to forgive them. It's really hard being them. And he dropped down into the earth and he descends to the dead and he raises again in newness of life. And all he asks for us is come unto me. My yoke is easy. My burden's light. I did the hard part. But I realize you got some stuff you got to carry. Not everything's evidently under your feet yet. It really is, but it doesn't show up that way. That's okay. Simon, pick up my cross. I'll walk the rest of the distance with you. What do you got that's wrong? I'll take it on me too. I'm not saying your life's going to get easy. I'm saying I'm going to walk that hill with you. I'm saying welcome to the family where we lay things down. The practical side of my Christianity is that in practice, everything is not under my feet. In my theology, they are under my feet because of Jesus. In practice, they are not all under my feet. So how do I get them under my feet? I continue to walk that hill carrying the cross that is mine, whatever it looks like. It might help you with your physical pain. It might help you with your mental anguish. It might help you with your struggles in this world. Not to fall on your knees and question why God allows it to happen, but to fall on your knees and accept the one who carries the cross up the hill with you. When Paul says, I may know the power of His resurrection, we don't quote the fellowship of His sufferings because who possibly wants to fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus? Yet I got news for you. You have one thing in common with everybody. Democrat, Republican, black, white, male, female, American, foreigner, doesn't matter. You have one thing in common. The faster we learn this, the closer we'll be to unity on the planet. Every single person that ever lives suffers. They hurt. And I mean they hurt. To the point that they lay and they cry and they weep and they seek their God, whomever He is. Or they shake their fist at the heavens and gnaw their tongue for pain. It doesn't matter what they have going in. Every single one of us will find a reason to suffer. And if you haven't found it yet, hold on, honey. Because your day is coming. It's part of the human experience. It's part of picking up the heaviest load that's in front of you and carrying it as far as you can. And if we are all going to suffer anyway, would it not serve us to be a disciple of the one who teaches how to live through suffering? If we are all going to hurt, doesn't it serve us to follow the one who hurt on our behalf? If I'll suffer without him and I'll suffer with him, I choose to suffer with him. 
I choose to suffer with the one who suffered on my behalf, who knows my hurts, who bore my sorrows, who knows my pain. I'm a disciple of that one. I'm a son of God, come hell or high water. But I'll be a disciple of Jesus, come hell or high water as well. Because only in that do I learn what it means to walk up that hill. Only in that am I Simon that says I would take this to the top of that hill. I present you two truths today, not because they're contradictory, but because they're a paradox worth wrestling over. It's a paradox worth wrestling to say he loves me, I am a son, I am the righteous of God in Christ but I got a bunch of hell going on in my life. Father, what part of this could I lay down that would show the victory from underneath my feet? What part of this could... And can I give you one illustration? I stop. I love this illustration because it's the one that makes the most sense and it's the hardest to do. So why not go to the top of the mountain, right? You want to know what it looks like to truly pick your cross up? Forgive somebody. Don't just forgive somebody that said, I'm sorry. Scratch that. That's easy. I know it ain't easy, but it's really easy compared to the one I'm going to give you. Forgive the person that doesn't ask for it, that doesn't want it, that would double down and do it to you again, given the chance. And what happens is you put yourself on a cross in which you die to your right to be avenged and your right to be right and your right to win. If you don't think it's heavy carrying a cross, give that baby a spin tomorrow at work. And if you don't see the paradox, I present you haven't yet forgiven someone who doesn't deserve it. And if you haven't, try it out. Because the moment you do, you'll have your first real revelation of what the cross looks like. Where Jesus looked at you and went, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I didn't ask God to do that for me. Too bad. Too bad. He forgave you whether you like it or not. The cross happened whether you like it or not. Jesus didn't die twice. He died once because he was so finished with it. He said, I don't ever need to do this again. You can shake your fist at God forever. He goes, too bad. Too late. Done deal. It is finished. Stone's been rolled away. New man on the earth. Come live with me or live without me. But I live on this earth with purpose and reason. You're going to go through hell, might as, well go with it who's for, might as well go through it with someone who's already been there. And that's us in Christ. So I give you all sides of the good news today. Good news. It's easy being a son. Good news. It ain't always easy being a disciple. But the same Jesus that invites you into his yoke of ease helps pick up your cross and carry it up that hill. And that's the Jesus I stand here to declare to you today. I hope I've ripped some grave clothes off your life today. I hope he made just a little bit easier to walk up that hill today. I hope I even inspired you to reach down and pick up a little bigger weight than you're carrying right now because you're made for more than this. Because you're stronger than you know you are. Because you're a people that are made in the image of God. And God challenges you, all you Simons, all of us Simons standing by the road. He challenges us, pick that up and let's go. You and me, I know it's more than you want, but I can do it with you. And if you do that today, it's the beginning of the rest of your life. Father, I thank you this morning for the goodness of your grace. I thank you today for the power of your word. I thank you for two truths. Both of them true at the exact same time. An absolute paradox. A yoke that is easy and a cross that is heavy. How do we bring these two together? Christ is our example. And I I hope, Father, we've, we've made it clear that by looking to Jesus, we find our hope. Where we have failed today, Father... Don't let that word take root. Where we have succeeded today, Father, may it flourish in your people. 
as they take that first, that next step, maybe it's their very first step towards following that resurrected Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Isn't God good, church?